I think that I see the Lieutenant Governor out there. I'm sorry that I missed you. If you would stand, please. And I'm sure that there are others that I have missed. I apologize for that, but that also gives me an opportunity to mess up the service just a little bit. I love that song. That's probably my very favorite hymn. And uh, see if you can find that last verse, and let's all stand. I want us to sing it with them. It was 2,000 years ago that Jesus established the church. It was Pentecost. Simon Peter preached. 3,000 people were saved and baptized. Jesus referred to those people as the ecclesia, the called out. They were people who had been called out of the world and called to the Lord. But why did he establish the church? What is the purpose of the church? In the South especially, we have churches on every corner. Across the street, there's Washington Street Methodist Church, and also across the street, there's First Presbyterian Church. Why is it that Jesus established the church? Why do we exist? What is our purpose? Well, I think that there are three basic purposes given to the church. The first is to worship the Lord. In Matthew chapter 28, verse number 17, the Bible says that they worship Him. And folks, that's what we are to do. We are to worship the Lord. That's why it's a worship service. I get a little amused at times, and to be honest, aggravated at times, when people think the only way to worship the Lord is with a traditional service or a liturgical service or a contemporary service, which says to me that worship then becomes about us rather than him. You see, the church was established that we might gather together to worship the Lord. But if our worship is legitimate, if it is true, 
then it results in evangelism. And so Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, that you are to make disciples. So if I have truly worshipped the Lord, then the next step out of that is that I reach out to make disciples. And for evangelism to be complete, then there must be discipleship. And Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, that you are to teach them. So that was the church that the Lord established 2,000 years ago, a church that would worship Him, that would reach out to the lost, and would disciple those who had been saved. This church was established 200 years ago. Dr. Gregory Wills wrote a history book about the establishment of this church. Wonderful book, interesting book because of the history of the church. And he records that establishment when he said, Early on a Sunday morning in the autumn of 1809, a large crowd gathered on the banks of the Congaree River at Columbia, South Carolina. They had come there to witness the baptism of five Baptist converts. William B. Johnson, a young preacher who later became the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention, officiated the ceremony. And Taylor entered the river first. And from that humble beginning, 200 years ago, has come what I believe to be one of the great churches in America. The most wonderful people in the world are part of this congregation. And so the church then was established 200 years ago. We have been blessed with capable and influential pastors. Our history book records among the pastors of the church have come two college presidents, two seminary presidents, eight state convention presidents, and three presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention. Our first preacher was Jonathan Maxey. Dr. Wills writes, Jonathan Maxey, the first president of South Carolina College, University of South Carolina, was in large measure the founder of First Baptist of Columbia. He was the first Baptist minister to preach regularly in Columbia. So the first preacher for this congregation was Dr. Maxey. And then he was followed by William B. Johnson. And our history book records William B. Johnson was the founding pastor of the First Baptist Church of Columbia. It goes on, Johnson led the South Carolina Baptist Convention in its effort to establish a college and theological seminary. Both Furman University and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary can trace their origins to these efforts. And then, of course, there was James P. Boyce, one of the most influential and historic figures in Southern Baptist life, who led in the building of our historic sanctuary, which is 150 years old this week as well. As a matter of fact, he was one of the wealthy pastors we had. He paid for half that building. So when we built this building, some of our smart aleck deacons said to me, last time we built a sanctuary, the pastor paid for half of it. What I want to do today is to use our history as a launching pad for our future. So take your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, verse number 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, 
he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, Jesus poses a primary question that is pivotal to your faith. He asks the question concerning his own identity, and he does so as he takes the disciples on a field trip. It's interesting the place to which he takes them. He takes them to Caesarea Philippi, which is about 120 miles from Jerusalem. It is at the foot of Mount Hermon. It's a lovely place. There are trees there. There is a river that runs through it and so forth. But the reason that it is an interesting place to pose this question is because it was the seat of paganism. Now, in Caesarea Philippi, there were 14 temples to Baal. So it was the center then of Baal worship. There was one temple there that was to honor Caesar Augustus. And then there is a cave at Caesarea Philippi that is said to be the place where Pan, the Greek god of nature, was born. And so it was to this place that Jesus brought the disciples to ask them a question concerning his identity. The reason that's of interest to me is because it seems to me that America is becoming increasingly like Caesarea Philippi and that we are becoming a nation of many gods and many religions. Now, the America in which I grew up basically considered itself to be a Christian nation. And uh, in the small town in West Texas where I grew up, we all essentially went either to the Baptist church or to the Methodist church. It was not unusual to have prayer in school. It was regularly expected that the Gideons would come to school and give Bibles to those who had memorized Scripture. But that's the American which I grew up and many of you grew up. But as time has gone by, Christianity has been replaced in our society by pluralism. Now, there are those people who think that religious pluralism is something new. Well, it really isn't. In fact, you can go back to ancient Rome and see religious pluralism because in ancient Rome, when they sent the army into a place to conquer the country, to conquer the nation, to conquer the city, oftentimes they would take the god of that country, the god of that city, they would put it in the Roman pantheon, and then it became an official god to worship. Of course, it caused some problems in the empire because the people were so fragmented with different gods. That was the reason that they established Caesar worship to try to unite the people. That was also true in ancient Greece. In the city of Athens, they had altars and statues to all the known gods. And just in case they had left one out, they had an altar to the unknown god. 
It was said in Athens that it was easier to find a God than it was to find a man. So when I, when I look at Caesarea Philippi and I, I look at some of the ancient cities, I look at America, Wikipedia says that 76% of Americans consider themselves to be Christian. Now, that might be impressive, but in 1990, the figure was at 86%. 4% are Buddhist, Hindu, Islam, or Jewish. The other 20% have no religion or they are something else. As I look at this passage of Scripture, Jesus takes the disciples on a field trip to a pagan area, and that becomes his classroom. And there in that classroom, he asked two questions. The first question is a general question in verse number 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, they responded to that question. They were complimentary, of course, just as people are today. Who is Jesus? Well, there are those people who think that you are John the Baptist, reincarnated. Uh, that would be an easy association because both of them were extremely bold. John the Baptist referred to the Pharisees as being a bunch of snakes. Jesus said they were hypocrites, so they both were bold. We understand that. There are others who think that, that maybe you're Elijah. Well, Elijah was a man of prayer, and Jesus was also a man of prayer. Others think that you're Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a compassionate man. In fact, he is known as the weeping prophet. And Jesus, the Bible says, wept over the city of Jerusalem. So they, they were complimentary. As they said, there are those who think that you are Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets. They were close, but they were wrong. Folks, do you understand that it is possible to be close to the truth and yet not have the truth? Close but wrong? In golf... You might have a 30-foot putt, and it's a great putt. You hit the ball, uh, but it's about an inch from going in the hole. You're close, but it's still a stroke. The same thing is true in religion. We can be close, but wrong. There was a um, Sunday school teacher in the children's area who asked her children, why is it we celebrate Easter? And the children started crying out their answers. One of them said, well, because we get new clothes, because of the Easter bunny, because of Easter candy, because of Easter egg hunts and so forth. There's one little girl who said, Easter celebrates Jesus coming out of the tomb. Well, the teacher was elated. Finally, there's somebody here who knows why we celebrate Easter. And then the little girl continued. He looks to see if he can see his shadow, and if he can, he goes back in for another six weeks. <laughs> the point is, is that we can be close on some things, but terribly wrong. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity wrote, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. So Jesus asked the question, who do the people say that I am? Who do they think I am? And they were close but wrong. 
So there is a general question and then a personal question in verse number 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Isn't that interesting? The question of Jesus always becomes personal, does it not? It always ends up personal. What had happened is that God had promised after man had sinned that he was going to send the Messiah, a Savior. As a matter of fact, the only religion that has a Savior is Christianity. Others have prophets. Christianity has a Savior. So God promised that he was going to send a Savior, a Messiah. Moses wrote about that in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15, when he announced that God was going to provide a Savior. Isaiah wrote about this prophesied Messiah. He said uh, 700 years before he was born that he would be born of a virgin. Micah wrote about it. He, about the same time of, of Isaiah, said that he would be born in the city of Bethlehem. David told us how that he was going to die. So God had promised that he was going to send a Savior, and we believe that that promise was fulfilled in Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse number 41, the Bible says, He, speaking of Andrew, he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. We have found the Savior. It is Jesus. And then in John chapter 1, verse number 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So, as I look at this passage of Scripture, Jesus took the disciples on a field trip to Caesarea Philippi, place of paganism. He asked them a question concerning his identity. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And then he gave them some homework. There is an assignment. If Jesus established the church and the church belongs to Jesus, then he has the right to make the assignment. And he says that the church, first of all, is to be progressive. Now look at verse number 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. When he said, I will build my church, that carries the idea that the church is not finished, that the church is not complete. He said, I will build my church. It is in process, so the church then is not completed. First Baptist Church has been here for 200 years, but the work is not done. I will build my church. So the church then is to be progressive. I will build my church. And the church is to be aggressive. Look again in verse number 18. And the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Uh, now, folks... The church has the tendency to cower in today's society. And there are those who tell us, well, you're to keep all of that within the walls of the church. I mean, it's fine for you to go down there and sing praises if you want to and have a little meal if you want to and do the things that you do. That's fine. But just keep it inside the walls of the church. Jesus said that the church is to be aggressive. He said that the church will storm the gates or the authority of hell with the gospel, and the authority of hell will not stand against it. Now, that is our assignment. How do we do that? How do we do that? Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to have to become serious about evangelism. 
We are going to have to become serious about sharing our faith. And if we do not, the church is going to continue to decline and America, as many of us know it, is going to die. Share our faith as individuals personally. Lee Young, who was a member of this church, and they moved to the upstate, called Linda the other day. She was so excited. She had been sharing her faith with some people, and three of them had professed faith in Christ. Let me ask you a question. How long has it been since you've told another person about Jesus Christ and what he's done in your life? We are going to have to get serious about sharing our faith personally, also through the use of media, television, the Internet. We broadcast our services here in the Midlands. We broadcast them in Greenville. We broadcast them in uh, Florence, Myrtle Beach. We broadcast them in Charleston. And the Lord is using that. In fact, Jerry was down at the Walterboro doing a funeral Thursday, and he said that there were a number of people came up to him who said that they watched our services. And there was one lady who said, I have come to know how to have a relationship with God because of those services. I want to see us expand that. And Sylvia's already looking and expanding our ministry to the Savannah area and to the, to the Augusta area so that we can cover the entire state. I think that it's important. I think that we, we use everything we can to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the media is one way of doing that. Another way is church plants. Now, recently we have started five new churches. Did you know that those churches, those five churches, will have in attendance every Sunday morning between 800 and 900 people? And as the Lord opens doors, I think we need to be sensitive to it. Maybe He wants us to start 15 more. And if he does, we just need to be sensitive to it and we need to do it. Mission trips. Many of you already do mission trips. But I think that as we go into the future, that we need to provide more and more opportunity for our people, for you, to be involved in short-term mission trips. Evangelism. If we are going to make an impact in our world, we're going to have to get serious about evangelism. And then Jesus said to us that we are to be the salt and the light. As a matter of fact, when he said that, it is emphatic, which means you and you alone are the salt. You and you alone are the light. There is no salt but you. There is no light but you. It's emphatic. When he said that you are to be the salt, it means that we are in a, a society of corruption and we are to be a preservative. When he said that you are to be the light, it means that we are in a world of darkness and we are to be the light. Folks, are you salt and light in your home? Dads, are you salt and light around your children? Do they see Jesus? Do they see godliness in your life? Well, my heavens, if they don't see it in you, then why should they think it's important? We are to be salt and light in our homes in our places of work, in the school, and even in the political arena. We can stand back and, and curse the darkness, or we can turn on the light. We need to get involved in being the salt and the light in this world, because Jesus said, you are the only salt and you are the only light. There is no more. There are some things as we look to the future that we need to do financially. The promise, which is our... The plan we are currently 
giving to, and we've remodeled it, uh, Lindsay Building over there, and paid down some debt and those kinds of things. Well, it runs out. Now, I know some of you are going to know exactly when it runs out. I think it's April or May, somewhere in there. And uh, that's finished. But uh, now you know that we're not going to let that quit, don't you? When we get finished with that, I would really like to see us raise another million dollars to refurbish this building, our buildings. We've been in here for 17 years. Carpet needs to be replaced. Some painting needs to do. And I notice that these flowers are leaking. I hope it's the flowers that are leaking. <laughs> There's something leaking, but we need to do... Some of our deacons have gotten old, so, you know. <laughs> we need to refurbish it. We need to paint it up. We need some personal. We need to raise a million dollars to that, and then I'd like to raise another million dollars to pay on our debt. Our, our debt is unbelievable. It's down to, three, what, $3 million, Richard? I think around $3 million. We get it down another million dollars, then we put, are able to amortize it and, and put it in the budget and those kinds of things. But I think that it's important that we do that. Long term, we need to get aggressive about endowments. And, uh, and we, need to, we need to have an endowment for media that is $2 million and then an endowment for facility that is a $1 million. And if we had that, then we could use the earnings off of that to offset some of the cost in the budget. You say, well, that's a lot of money. Well, I'm talking about when you die. Put us in the will. <laughs> not today. Some, you know, some of you are not going to be here next year. I might not be here next year, but put it in the will. Jesus said to the church as he took them to Caesarea Philippi, ask them a pivotal question. Who do you say that I am? And if you declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he said, then I have an assignment for you. You are to be progressive, building the church, and you are to be aggressive, sharing the gospel. First Baptist Church has a fascinating history. The last paragraph of our history book says, Through all the difficulties and challenges, the faithful members and their ministers have persevered in the faith and in the service of Jesus Christ and have, by the grace of God, enjoyed much fruit from their labors. What a testimony. I'm grateful for our history, but I'm more excited about our future. Ben Nathan said, Do not judge the future by the past. In the past may be wisdom, but in the future is life and the miracles of the living which know no end. The past has experiences. But the future has surprises. The past produces memory, but the future produces expectation and hope. The past is closed, but the future is open. Ladies and gentlemen, our best days are still before us. I believe that in my heart. You say, well, do you know what all is going on? I really don't. But I know Jesus, and he does. And all the power we need is ours through him. Our best days are ahead. We celebrate 200 years of service to the Lord today. And we're going to extend an invitation this morning. 
If you have never committed your life to Jesus Christ, would you do so today? Say, well, you know, I'd like to know the Lord, but I don't want to be a Baptist. Well, sometimes I don't want to be a Baptist either. (laughs) But that's not the thing that's important. The important thing is, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? And if you do not today, would you come and, and let someone pray with you and show you how and you could pray and receive Christ as Savior? There are some who've been thinking about joining this church for a long time. There will never be a better time than today on the 200th anniversary. Why don't you do it today? But I'm also going to ask this. During the time of an invitation, I'm just going to let you be seated during this time because I would like for some of you who would come and say, I am just going to commit anew to the Lord. Don't want to talk to anybody, but I sort of want to seal it. So you come to the altar and just kneel and commit anew to the Lord and then return to your seat. So I'm going to pray. You remain seated. The choir will sing. And the staff will be here. If you're coming to join the church or you're coming to trust Christ, they will be here to receive you. And you who just want to get hold of your family and say, on this day, on this special day, I want to come and renew my commitment to the Lord. Then you come and pray and then return. Our gracious Father in God, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. Thank you for your great and gracious love. And Lord, during this time of invitation, how I pray for those who need to answer the question concerning the identity of Christ. Who do you say that I am? And Lord, that they might answer as did Simon Peter, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Lord, for those who should come and become a part of this family of faith, I, feel that, I pray that they would feel comfortable to do that today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the staff is here. You are seated. The choir sings. Would you come right now and make a commitment to the Lord or just come and pray and commit anew to Him?